0: Matthew 5:14 through 16. Matthew 5:14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a, under, under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone. In the house, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven when i when I think about light, I think about something that happened to me um, i think or not to me, but I, I was there for it when I was in uh, i don 't know eighth and ninth grade, something like that. I was living in tampa and uh, and, and i always the, the interesting thing about light, and this is a pretty obvious thing is that Light shines brighter in darkness. And this is really why Jesus tells us you are the light of the world. You are like a city on a hill. You cannot be hidden. Everyone around you sees it. Because the truth is the world, spiritually, is a very dark place. We've we've, we've talked about it. There's suffering. There's sin. There's there's broken promises and broken relationships. And there's, there's just hurt. And like Lindsay said this morning, sometimes life just sucks. And that's the truth. And so it is a dark place. But the advantage of it being a dark place is that the light of God's love can shine brighter and brighter than it ever could if everything was perfect and everything was going um, according to our plan. So I always think about light shooting through darkness. You're in a dark room and you have a flashlight. One time I was, um, again, when I was in 8th or ninth grade, I was hanging out with my best friend Robbie. Um, he would spend the night all the time. Do I have any spend the night fans? Slumber party fans? Yeah, like I, we, would, we would spend the night at each other's house like every single weekend during the summer. He'd come over like five days in a row and he'd bring like one outfit and he would just take showers and put it back on or my mom would wash it for him. And, and we really weren't planning it. He would just stay for a week and just kind of hang out. And, and one during one of those hangouts, um, for some reason, we were playing with like a glow stick. We, we each had glow sticks. Um, just the little old school glow sticks, thick, about this long. Um, you break them, the hard ones, and then you shake them up, and then the uh, juices get flowing or whatever, and some kind of chemical reaction happens, and it starts glowing. Um, and so we, were, <clears throat> we had them, and um, I had a bunk bed until I was like 25. And so during this time, I had my bunk bed still, obviously, because I was in like 8th or ninth grade. But I had I'd graduated from like standard bunk beds, to where um, you turn the bottom bunk out and you put your desk underneath that 's like a teenage bunk bed that 's like when you really when you when you 've gone to the next level of bunk bed, so I had that little setup so i 'd lay on the bottom bunk, my head would be facing like out, not underneath the bed, and then he would lay on the top bunk th- that way, and so we could kind of like see each other. He'd climb up the ladder and he'd get in bed, and we'd kind of talk. and And you guys know how it goes—you talk for hours with your best friend. Um, you turn the lights off, and that doesn't mean you're going to sleep. You just sit there and talk back and forth about different things. And uh, and one time, he, as we were turning the lights off and uh, and getting to bed, he was climbing up, and we had had these glow sticks. I really don't know why we got the glow sticks or why we had them, but. Um, he, he started chewing on it for some reason, and he, and he, just, and he was just like chewing on it, and like kind of like when he'd have a t- I love toothpicks, he'd so just like chew on stuff, but um, so he was chewing on a glow stick, and he just keeps chewing on it, and I remember as he's climbing up into the bed, I guess uh, the plastic around the glow stick had had enough of his teeth, and uh, it decided to give way, and so what happened was the juices that were glowing, the radioactive uh, waste inside of there started to stream All in his mouth and down his uh, face and his chest. And it spilled all over the room. And the lights were out. So it was like, my first thought was like, crap, my mom's going to kill me. And I wasn't really thinking, obviously, for those of you who are laughing, because first of all, glow sticks um, only glow in the dark, and when you turn on the lights, there's no mess. It was kind of cool. It'd be like, turn on the lights, hey, everything's good. Turn off the lights, oh my gosh, my mom's going to kill me. And also, lights, uh, the, 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 the lights of a glow stick obviously go out after like four or five hours. So it really wasn't a big deal, but at the moment, I was like, oh crap, what are we going to do? we got to clean it up. i got to go get the, the carpet cleaner, and it's everywhere. It was all over the wood. And it was incredible, because it was dark. And the glow stick was still, like, in its prime, and it's just everywhere. And, and then he slowly turns to me, and he's, like, kind of scared because he's, like, I'm not sure if I'm going to die or not. But he, uh, but he, he, he turns to me, and he's, like, like, oh. Uh, and then he slowly smiles, and I remember i 'll never forget that smile. It was like a radioactive, like mutant smile. They were You could see every line in his teeth, the dark lines, his teeth were bright green. His tongue, when he stuck it out, was bright green, it was draining down his chest. He looked like he had just eaten like a zombie. It was all over all over him and, and I just remember thinking, wow that 's pretty cool i 'm glad it didn 't happen to me and look at look at that great amount of light that 's coming. Uh, coming out of him and, and all over the floor. And that's, and that's really what I think about when I read this verse is, is light in a dark place. And light shines so much brighter in a dark place. And just like that situation, if we turn on the lights, you don't see anything. But when we turn off the lights and there's darkness, it, it is it's so much brighter. And so as we look at this, at this scripture and we think about light in darkness and light cutting through the darkness... I kind of just want your mind to be there and your mind to think about a flashlight or a glow stick in the darkness. Now, as we look at this, at the, at this verse, we, it says, you are the light of the world. You are the light in the darkness. Jesus doesn't format this as like a question or a suggestion. He, he, he states it as a fact. You are the light of the world. There, there is, there's really no choice about it. You're the light of the world. And so what we have to first say is, okay, we're going to be a light no matter what we want as believers. So do I want to be a bright light or a dim light? Do I want to be a bright light or a dim light? Because no matter what, Jesus told us, we are the light of the world. As he continues, he says, a city built on a hill cannot be hidden. It's, it's interesting who he was talking to. Most of the people that followed Jesus were nobodies, were powerless, were poor, were women and children who, in that time, had absolutely no social standing, had no power. Most of the people um, were, were sick or, or outcast from the town. The, 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 the people that were like social pariahs that nobody wanted to deal with, nobody wanted to pay attention to. These are the people that follow Jesus. So as he's preaching this sermon, it's very likely that the majority of these people are like, Jesus, stop, stop, stop. Who, do you know who you're talking to? We're not a light of anything. In, in fact, we, don't, we really don't have anything to offer. We have, we're a bunch of nobodies, and, and, and what, how can we be a light in the world? And the interesting thing is Jesus wasn't really talking about us. Yes, we are a light on the, uh, of the world, but it's not because of us. It's not because of us. It's because of him. In, in United before, we've talked about how we reflect God's light, how we do not shine in and of ourselves, but that we can, as we look to Jesus, can reflect his light to the world. And so that is what he was saying. He was saying it doesn't really matter if you are young or old, if you're a woman or a child, uh, or if you're a man, or if you have a great job or a terrible job, if you're great, talented, and, or, or if you're not, it doesn't matter. You are the light of the world. And so it goes on to say, as I said, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Cities in this time were mostly built on hills and mountains um, so that they could protect themselves, so that they could pay a place that was desirable. Most people, if you didn't live in a city, there was like a problem. Like you were, you were not going to be protected, you didn't necessarily have a source for food. Um, it, was, it was a social standing to be able to live in a village or a town at that time because it meant protection, it meant security. And so people wanted to be in cities. Cities were desirable. And I think always when I think about a city on a hill, and I've told you this before as well, is when we used to go to Jamaica and we stayed down at the cottages on the, on the bay, every night when the sun went down across the bay, you could see uh, St. Anne's Bay, which is a city, uh, a pretty medium to large city in Jamaica. And you could just see all the lights start to turn on on the hillside across from us. And it was very obvious because it wasn't like it was a street light. That was behind trees. It was up on a hill. Everybody could see it. Everyone could see. Well, that's where a, a city was. And if you imagine traveling during this time, um, if you w- happened to start walking um, and, the dark, and the sun went to, started to go down and you started to panic, the, the sense of relief that you would get when you looked upon a hill and started to see the lights. Okay, I can get there and take refuge for the night. I can find an inn or a hotel to stay in and then I can continue my journey. They were a, they were a very desirable place to be. Cities meant resources, and, and obviously we would never want to go to a city. Even today, we'd never want to go to a city that had no resources, that had no light. If you if, if someone said, hey, do you want to move to this city? Oh, sure, tell me about it. Well, it has no electricity. We'd be like, uh, I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm not, I'm not going to, to move there because there, there's nothing for me, and there's really nothing desirable about that. A city is desirable for its resources and for its light, for its power. And so if we are a, a dim city, if we are or a light, or a city that can't even be seen, what's the point? What's the point? As it continues, it says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, so they put it high up, so that, so that it gives light to everyone in the house. Many times in in these ancient days they had homes that were one big room or maybe perhaps one common uh, uh, little courtyard or room and maybe one little bedroom that they would all sleep in. But if they had um, obviously no electricity, if they had a lamp, they would put the lamp in the center of the house and it would give light to most of the house. They weren't living in these five-bedroom, six-bedroom houses. And so this light in the middle of the home was important to put up on a stand so that everyone could see when the sun went down. And if you notice um, something uh, about this that, that's very important. It is that he mentions a house. So he starts with a city. He says, you're the light of the world. Okay. Then he kind of goes a little bit smaller and he says, you're a city on a hill. And then he goes <clears throat> down to a home. And he says, you are a light in your home. Well, who lives with us in a home? Who, who is with us and around us in our homes? It is the people that are closest to us. So That takes us to the first point. We don't need to save the world. We need to shine a light on the people close to us. We don't need to save the world. We need to shine a light on the people close to us. And again, I think this is something that we get wrong when we're talking about sharing our faith. We're like, oh, well, how can I have an impact? There's six, or there's, I don't know, six or seven billion people in the world. Like, what am I supposed to do? How can I change anything? And the truth is, you're not called to change. The entire world will save the entire world all at once. You're called first to the people around you. Now all of a sudden it becomes a lot more easy because we have influence with the people around us. We have relationships with the people around us. We have uh, an ability to talk to and understand the people around us. We can reach out to the people around us much better than anyone else can. You can reach out to your friends in a lot of situations better than I can or better than your life group leader can because you have a relationship. And so what he's saying here is Shine the light on the people closest to you, on the people in your home. And then it closes with, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so everyone else, not just the people in your home, but everyone else, getting back to more of a global sense, that they may see your good deeds. And now, a lot of times this is where we stop, that they may see my good deeds. If I'm a Christian, I should be good, so that people can notice that I'm good. And, uh, and then they'll, they'll think that's good. And, okay, I've done my job. But notice that it, it it continues, and it doesn't say, so they can see your good deeds and think you're a good person. No, it says, so they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So the whole purpose of those good deeds, of living according uh, to, to Christ's law and Christ's rule and the way Jesus lived, is so that people will glorify our Father in heaven. In, in other words, so that they will know Jesus. So they will know God the Father. And so if we're going to look at, uh, at being a city on a hill, we've got to learn from the best. If you want to be a great soccer player, you get a great soccer coach. If you want to be a great uh, musician, you get a great piano teacher, guitar uh, teacher. And so when we want to look at being a city on a hill, we have to look at the original light of the world, the one that said, I am the light of the world. We have to look at Jesus. So flip over to Luke 19, 1-10. Luke 19, 1-10. It is a few books over Matthew Mark Luke Chapter 19 Turn there in your Bibles please This is a uh, a story that's familiar to many of us it's called uh, Zacchaeus the tax collector I'm going to start reading Je- Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy now, just so you know, as you may have heard before, tax collectors were not liked. Um, tax collectors routinely took advantage of people. Now, he was a chief tax collector, so that means he was like the head of other tax collectors. That means he was more corrupt, more um, cheating of, of people, more dishonest, and, and just more um, hated by the people of Israel. Because what he did was he collected money for Rome, and so uh, the Jews hated him, but the Romans hated him because he was Jewish, and and so he really was liked by nobody. He was despised. But he had heard about Jesus, and so he says this, he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was so short, he could not see over the crowd. The first thing I want you to notice is he was outside of the crowd. Again, people didn't like him. If he walked around and there was a group of people, most likely they'd do one of these. And as he walked towards him, they'd kind of do one of these. They'd start to close the circle. And so you can imagine as he would walk through town, people would kind of just turn their head, start to look at their feet or start to look at something else because they didn't want to look or talk to Zacchaeus. And he could not see over the crowd. The crowd of of people that were following Jesus kept him from Jesus. They didn't want anything to do with him. They weren't gonna let him through to see Jesus. They probably thought, you don't deserve to talk to the prophet Jesus, the teacher Jesus. So he was hated. It says, so he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And so uh, this was a a man that um, was clever, a man that um, had had gotten by on his his brains and his wits and his cleverness for a long time. And he thinks, okay, well, I kind of see the path going, there's a tree up there. I think I see an intersection. I'm going to try to get up ahead. I'm going to climb up there, and I'm going to get a nice little aerial shot of Jesus walking under me. I don't need these people. I don't need friends. I don't need anything else. They don't have to let me through. I'm just going to do this on my own. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him. Now, notice, Jesus was passing through. He was walking through the town. There were other people and other business to attend to, and yet he looks up. He looks For the person that's on the fringe. The person that is desperate and lonely. The person that that didn't have anyone with him. And a lot of times we think, well, if they have money, then they're okay. We we need to help poor people. That's not the truth. The truth is we need to help all people. And especially we need to help people that are hurting and don't know Jesus. Because they need, they may not be poor um, physically, but they're poor relationally. They're poor spiritually. That's Zacchaeus' case. He he had all the things in the world, but he needed the touch of people. He needed relationships. He needed something more. Obviously, he was unfulfilled. And look at what Jesus said. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Notice what we talked about this morning. Notice the urgency in Jesus' voice. He doesn't do one of these, hey, Zacchaeus, if you're not doing anything later, hey, maybe next time I come through Jericho, if I'm passing through, and if I have a moment, and if I happen to be hungry, maybe I'll hang out with you. He doesn't do one of those, hey, uh, Zacchaeus, oh, you want to hang out? Yeah, let me check my schedule. I'll get back to you in a month, and and knowing that he's never going to do it. No, he says, with urgency, I must stay at your house. Come down immediately to urgent Words. And Zacchaeus immediately responds. He comes down from the tree and he welcomed, welcomed Jesus gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus did not respond to rules. He did not respond to religion, but he responded to a relationship. He responded to love and acceptance and an invitation. We talk about invitations all the time and how important they are. Here it is. Jesus gave him an invitation. Jesus loved him and reached out to someone that no one else reached out to. And Jesus wasn't super smooth. like He wasn't like talking cool and talking some lingo and like making himself sound cool. He's, he was actually kind of desperate. He was kind of like the desperate friend where it's like, hey man, I, you want to hang out? Come on, let's hang out. Uh, if you, have you ever seen uh, Happy Gilmore? All right. So um, so Happy Gilmore, that's the golf one, right? Am I right? So so there's the friend that wants to be friends with uh, Shooter, the, the golf uh, the golf pro, and he's like, hey man, want to hang out at the Red Lobster later? Hey man, you want to hang out? You want to be friends? And he's like desperate. That's kind of like what Jesus looks like here. He's like, Zacchaeus, please come down. Come down immediately. I need to hang out with you. He wasn't smooth, but he was urgent because he wanted to love Zacchaeus. He wanted to serve Zacchaeus. He wanted to show Zacchaeus that he mattered. And how often are we scared of people's response to us, and yet most people respond well to that. Most people want to be loved and accepted. Most people want to be invited to be a part of something. And this, is, uh, this leads us to the end of this scripture. And it says, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man, Zacchaeus too, is a son of Abraham. The, people of the, the Jewish people would have said, no, he's not. He's not one of us. He's betrayed us. But Jesus reinstates him and says, you are a son of Abraham. And in verse 10, he gives his purpose for everything. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So that's the second thing. Jesus was very clear about his purpose, and his purpose is our purpose. If we're followers of Jesus, his purpose is our purpose, and his purpose was to seek and save the lost, not to wait. Not to see what happened later. To seek. That means to go find. He went and found Zacchaeus. He sought him out. And he saved him. He changed him. So what is our role? What does it mean to be a city on a hill? First of all, we are called to be a light. That's pretty self-explanatory. Jesus repeatedly calls us to be a light. So you can write that down. We are called to be a light. In fact, we are a light whether we like it or not. The second thing is we can't assume someone else will reach the people close to us. This goes in with urgency that we talked about this morning. We can't just assume someone else will do it. When I worked at Publix, I bet a lot of you have worked at Publix, it was like the worst job I ever had, ever, and I worked, uh, I, I was, I worked as, for a summer as a plumber for Big G, and that's uh, picking up poop and digging ditches is pretty bad, but that was a lot better than Publix. I hated Publix, and I was a bagger and cashier, and I, uh, I quickly kind of got used to the swing of things and... Um, The first six months, I was like the best worker in there, and then the next year and a half, I was like the worst worker, because I got, I got, I made friends, I got kind of comfortable, I'd start joking around, and I was like, "Eh, I can get by without doing very much, and we called it slacking off. We'd go into the break room, and we'd sit there when we weren't on break, we'd go do carts and just disappear for two hours. Um, I think one time, I mean, one of my friends one time that worked at Publix went uh, and just got ice cream while he was working. He just, hey, I'm going to do carts. And he just left and went and got ice cream at like Cold Stone. It was Cole. He's shaking his fist. Awesome. Thank you, Cole. Um, and so we, we would lo- love to slack off. And <clears throat> we, had these, we, we, had a, we had a day called Chore Day. That was Saturday. Many of you, uh, chore day is on Saturday as well at your home, and you wake up, and your mom's like, Oh my gosh, I've been doing so much. Here's your list. And your dad gives you like a chart and a calendar, and it's like, You have to do this, 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 and this on every second uh, Saturday of the month. And so you're like, Oh my gosh, I just want to rest and uh, I just want to sleep, but it's chore day. At Publix, we had chore day. And, uh, as, and it meant we had to, like, clean the top of, a, of the, the Coke machines. We had to change the, the, the filters on the, on the coffee machines. We'd have to clean the carts. Um, carts get very disgusting, so we'd have to, like, uh, sanitize them. Um, we'd have to do all these just menial tasks because, because they would bring us into work for eight hours, and there wouldn't be anybody in the store, and they knew that. So they'd get us to do all these little stupid tasks. And very quickly, I realized... Um, now that I'm, uh, now I have that I have a little seniority at Publix. I have a little bit of influence. I'm, I'm comfortable in my own shoes, um, in my own apron. Now I can, uh, I can kind of do what I want to do. And so one day I remember it was, a, it was a very clear memory. I'm actually really proud of it, which is really bad for me to say here. But I, I went up and they said, "Here's your chore list, Ryan." And I said, "All right." And it was like 50 things on like a little like they like wrote it in like eight point font and they put it on this little sticky thing and it was like 80 jobs and I was like. Oh, I really don't feel like doing this i 'd really rather just go to the bathroom and sit there and wait for my shift to be over or uh kind of just find something to do un- until my shift is over and um, And so I got this bright idea. I turned around and I noticed hey there's a new employee today. Oh, a nice young tenth grade boy is uh fresh he got a fresh uh, his fresh starched. Publix apron and and shirt on and I turned around to him and I walked straight up to him and I said hey man what's your name okay cool my name is Ryan hey listen uh the front service uh, supervisor told me to give you these chores so uh why don't you just go do this for me And, and they just said and he was like oh okay and he like ran away and scurried off and did them and then like the next time I went up like uh like a couple weeks later the my supervisor was like so who are you gonna give the jobs to today and I was like uh, okay, okay, so, so you kind of know, know the deal. But I, I tried to pass the buck. I tried to pass it off and assume someone else is going to do it. Someone else will, will, will accomplish these tasks. They, I don't need to be involved. And so our role is that we can't assume someone else will reach the people close to us. We can't assume that someone else will reach the people close to us, our family and our friends. Here's the third thing. And the final thing, the Holy Spirit is the one that changes hearts. And we, this is a repeat of, of earlier today, but I want you to write it down again. The Holy Spirit is the one that changes hearts. We just follow his direction. The Holy Spirit is the one that changes hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one that changes hearts. Jesus is the one who saves. We are called to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. We are called to serve and love with urgency. We are called to share our story and to share what we believe and to share the good news. But we don't change hearts. The pressure's off. And that's why I think evangelism is so scary. We're like, how am I gonna convince them to be a Christian? That's not your job. It's not your job. It's not your job to convince someone to be a Christian. Your job is to share your story to serve and love and allow the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts. And sometimes you have to be patient. And you have to just do what you can do. And again, that's to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. Um, one more quick story. Don, uh, Don Jacobs, he's a guy that works at our church. Um, he has a brother-in-law that is, uh, was born Orthodox Jew, lived his whole life as a Jew. Um, and uh, has leukemia. And uh, was kind of on near his deathbed. And they've been praying for him for 15 years. In this instance, they did what they could do. They prayed for him. They couldn't convince him that his faith was, was not complete without Jesus. They couldn't convince him of those things, um, but they could pray. And so they did what they could do. I'm sure they followed the Holy Spirit on many promptings and loved and served him over the course of 15 years, but I remember I was with him. I got the opportunity to be with him when he received a phone call a couple of months ago, and he kind of came back into the office or came back into the meeting with, with tears in his eyes, and he shared with the group that, His brother-in-law had just given his life to Christ. Imagine, Imagine the satisfaction of praying for someone and working with someone and following the Holy Spirit for 15 years, hoping that someone will be saved that's close to you, and finally seeing the Holy Spirit break down the barriers of their heart and seeing the patience pay off. We can only do what we can do. We have to allow the Holy Spirit... To change hearts, we're going to check out a testimony video of one of our students, um, Tyler, and it's a—it's uh, just a video of him sharing his story, sharing about how people close to him, once again, people close to him, friends, shared their faith, sent out an invitation, just like Jesus put out an invitation to Zacchaeus. So check out this video.
1: I pretty much grew up with Matt and Jackson through baseball at Atlantic Beach. And I mean we played together and we really like we all got really close my last year at like I uh, it was majors, the last year majors together, like our fall farewell it was me, Jackson, and Matt were all on the same team and all of our dads coached and that's when our relationship screwed like the most. And then after that we started hanging out more and they got me involved through Beach Student Ministries because Jackson, Jackson like started going to the church for a lot of us did and he he really liked it and he explained to us like what it was about and then John Moffat was a life group leader and he invited he just like every time we were there he would just invite us to come to life group on Wednesdays and started going to United and then I got invited to go to Epworth. At Epworth is like the probably like the hardest I've ever worshipped God. And I mean like our relationship just like grew like very, very strong and it got we got, we got really close, and, like, when I was praying, I just, like, I just like kind of, like, felt kind of felt like something, like, I need to make my own personal decision. I felt the call to be baptized because my relationship with Christ grew, grew like, very strong that week, that weekend, and I just kind of felt my calling, and, like, I, I remember, like, after we had prayer time, and, like, uh, John, John Weber, he was, like, you should go get baptized, and I was, like, yeah, I was thinking I should definitely go do that. So I told Chris that I was going to get baptized and he was he was happy. And Chris asked me if I wanted to be the first one to get baptized and I was like, why not? So that worked out like that. And when I was baptized, that that kind of made me feel like I was in a new relationship with Christ. Because I I accepted Christ, but it was like my own personal decision this time because like my parents the first time kind of just told me like, you're you're getting baptized this weekend, and I was just like, I was younger, I don't really remember it this time I felt like it was my own personal decision and my relationship with Christ was renewed. The closest of my relationship with my friends to accept the invitation, it played a big role in why I did it because I mean me, Matt and Jackson, we were we were always pretty close and they were they were good kids and they were very good friends. And I and I knew like what they said like wasn't like like I can trust them because we had a we had a long developed relationship through baseball for our whole lives. And like since we were always like hanging out over there, playing video games, outside playing basketball, Miss Moffitt ordering us pizza, I mean, I just thought like, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna try this church out. I've heard good things about it through my friends, and I trust my friends. So I'm gonna give it a try, and I gave it a try, and I loved it. I got invited to United from my friends, and then through my friends, I got convinced to go to Epworth, and through Epworth, Uh, my relationship with God grew and then I felt the call to be baptized and it goes to show that you should never not invite somebody to church just because you don't feel like it's right or you think it's going to be awkward it may affect your friendship but really it could just make your friendship with that person stronger
0: So here's what the, the, the call for us to do is we need to do our part. We need to do our part. And, and maybe your part <clears throat> feels a little bit small. Maybe you think, well, maybe I can only influence one person. Well, that's one person. And <clears throat> that's one person that's changed. That's one person that's affected and saved and loved and accepted and invited. So do your part. Think about what 260 separate parts can do together. Think about what each of us going and doing our part to the best of our abilities, following Jesus and the Holy Spirit to the best of our abilities can do. And, and be a part, be a part of the group, be a part of United, be a part of Beach Student Ministries of the church. See, we all kind of wanna be a part of something. That's why we join clubs and sports teams. That's why people you know, get on message boards and, they, and they, they go to these club meetings and uh, alumni meetings and stuff. They, they wanna be a part of something. They're going to volunteer for something because they want to be a part of something. We have this deep thing inside of us that makes us want to be a part of something. And what's better than being a part of the greatest community ever created, known as the church? So be a part of it. And then the last thing is experience it. Often I hear from, from, from people, um, young and old, that, you know, I'm kind of tired of church. You know, it was kind of a phase. I kind of did it for a little bit. You know, I kind of did the faith thing for a while. Me and Jesus are still cool on the side, but like I'm, you know, it's whatever. I'm kind of just over it now. Or, you know, I'm still a great, I'm still a thriving Christian, but I, I don't need church. Well, scripture says that's not true. Scripture says you can't be thriving alone. And in order for us to be a part and to do our part, we need to experience being a part of the church. If you're bored with church, it might be because you're not being the church. Does that make sense? You're not, you're not living out being a part of the church. You're not sharing your faith. You're not serving. You're not loving. You're not spending time with Jesus. You're not getting into a, a deep relationship with him. Maybe you're just kind of sitting on the sidelines. And yeah, when you sit on the sidelines, sometimes things can get a little boring and a little repetitive, church wasn't ever meant to be for spectators. It was meant to be for participants. So we have to experience it. I want to return, as as, as this is the last thing I'll say, I promise. I want to return to yesterday's or last night's scripture at the end. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Seems like a good thing, right? Jesus, please let me come with you. I'll do whatever it takes. I I got my clothes on. I got my act together. I got rid of those demons, and I I just want to get in the boat and follow you. Let me do it. Please, please, please see what Jesus does. He did not let him. Seems a little bit cruel, right? You just saved the guy, Jesus. Come on, let him, throw him a bone. Let him come and hang out with you for a little while. No, this is what Jesus says, go home. What does he mean by go home? Go to the people close to you. Go to the people that are hurting. Go to the people who, in fact, just told me to leave. They told Jesus, we want you to go. And so he said, okay, I'll go. Well, who is going to reach out to these people if they kick Jesus out? This man. He said, go home to your own people, the people you can relate to, the people you have a relationship with, the people that have seen what you've gone from, uh, a man that was bound up in chains to a man that is in his right mind, that loves God, that is dressed, that lives in a home again, that no longer lives in death in the tombs. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the people about how much Jesus had done for them. And and notice what happens. It says, as this verse closes, the people were amazed. Well, they weren't amazed at Jesus. They just sent him away. But they were amazed at the testimony and the story of someone that they knew, that they had a relationship with, that they were familiar with. We're called to be a light to the people around us, first and foremost. We can't, let, we can't assume that someone else will do it. And we have to be the light to those people. That's what city on a hill is. That's what being a city on a hill is.